Hello and welcome to Conversations in Economic Central. This is Mrs B with the second of our uh, revision uh, podcasts. And this time I'm going to be talking to the year 10s about geography and preparing for our geography section of the exam. So, of course, we've got two sides of geography to have a look at. We've got physical geography and we've got human geography. So I'm going to get started, first of all, on our physical geography. And I'm going to use the mind map that I've put into the revision section of our compass site. And you can have a look at that as we go through. So that's got the key headings of things that we need to know about. So we started off our study of geography looking at different types of maps. So make sure you're aware of the different types, chloropath, cartogram, topographic, um, climatic, resource maps, political, and so on. And just that you're aware of which one is and what's it actually showing. Make sure you know the definitions for longitude and latitude, what a cross-section is, how contour lines are used, and why we use field sketches. You should know a little bit about uh, climate change and greenhouse gases. So making sure that you know that it's greenhouse gases that are causing the problem in terms of human-induced climate change and knowing that they are actually part of our what we call carbon footprint. So you should be aware that it's different things that are emitting the carbon gases and they're made up of a variety of different things, most of which is carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels. And most of that comes from creating electricity and heat because, of course, we use many countries around the world use coal fired power stations to produce the energy and to produce the heat. So then we move on to world views. Now, you need to be aware of the different type of world views that exist. So we've got two different extreme views. We've got egocentric, which is where you focus. It's a human focus based only on your interest and personal wealth. And right over on the right is ecocentric, which is all about humans being part of the biotic community. And we should modify our behavior to uh, protect the ecosystems in the areas in which we live and belong. We've then got three other views in between that. So moving from egocentric, you move to homocentric, which is the focus on human needs and, and, and your belief is that humans are the dominant species. Moving to technocentric, where environmental problems can be solved using science and technology. Moving nearer to ecocentric, which is biocentric, where humans are not superior to other a species and these people want to promote biodiversity so you need to be aware of those then you also need to be aware of the ecosystem and the functions of our ecosystem so most of us now know that we've got four different functions of our ecosystem we've got source sink service and spirituality so source is referring to natural resources which uh, originate directly from the biophysical environment. So things like water, soil, timber, fish stocks, minerals, fossil fuels. And we often classify these sources in the resources in our source function as being renewable or non-renewable. Then we've got the sink function, which is the safe absorption of the wastes and pollutions produced by human activities. And that's the way that the environment deals with that waste and gets rid of it. Then we've got the service function, which is the provision of environmental or ecosystem services that support life without requiring human action. So, for example, the Earth's natural greenhouse effect, which operates to ensure the atmosphere holds the heat produced by the sun to keep us warm at the night 
in the night when the sun's no longer out and about. And that leads us on to our last function, which is the spiritual function, which is really this sort of connection to the land. It's more than a religious belief. It's a, it's a connection with the land. And of course, we know that our indigenous people have a very strong link to the ground, to the land via the dream time. But you could also think about people like the Hindus who have a very, very significant connection with the Ganges River over in India. So once you've looked at that, you then need to start looking at your fieldwork booklet because you're going to need to know the content of the research that you did about the coastal area you studied. So you need to be aware of the social, economic and environmental values, the C values. If you remember, if you look at my completed fieldwork booklet, I've actually gone through what each of those things mean and you then looked at them in the context of the coast you studied. So you need to make sure you're aware of those. You need to make sure you're aware of why coasts are important to us. We live in a, in a, in a, on an island and we have 10,000 different beaches, which would take us 27 years to visit if we went to one every day. So coastal environments are really important. And the vast majority of Australian people actually live, I think it's within 80% of us live within uh, 50 kilometres of the beach. So it's very important to us, this coastal area. You need to also look at your coastal change. So you need to be aware of uh, natural processes that have taken place to change your coastal area. So things like erosion, storm surge, those sorts of things. And you need to also may, may be aware of man-made changes that have occurred, human-induced coastal changes. So things like overuse, pollution through littering and plastic bottles and other things that are, are in the ocean. Okay, so you need to go back to that fieldwork booklet and make sure that you are familiar with those and can write about the examples from the coastal area you studied, which takes you on to the last part of our physical geography, which was our coastal management strategies. Now we know we've got protective coastal management strategies and we've got restorative coastal management strategies. And again, you've looked at lots of different strategies for your coastal area and you need to be familiar with a couple of them and be able to talk about what they are and how they work. Are they going to protect the coastal area from damage occurring or are they actually restoring damage that's already taken place? Okay, so that's really what we need to know with regards to our physical geography, which takes us on to our human geography, where we've been looking at human well-being across the world. So you need to make sure that you know the definition of well-being, the access of things human beings need to live healthy and happy lives. And you need to be aware of how we measure it. So we measure it using qualitative measures, which are opinion-based and can't be substantiated. And we also look at it from quantitative measures. So they are statistics that we use to actually look at the way uh, well-being is distributed across the world and we, we look at that thing we call spatial distribution. So we look at different types of data and see how those well-being statistics are spatially distributed around the world. Now we know in order to do that we're going to use that PQE, that pattern quantify exception method. Now, that, what that requires us to do is to look at the source, look at the data, and look for patterns in the data. Now, chloroplasts are often used for that, and it's different colours used to show different statistics. So we might, for example, be looking at gross national income per capita across the world, and there'll be different colours to show where the richer countries are located and where the poorer countries are located. So you're going to describe that pattern. Then you're going to pick out some specific examples, so some specific countries 
with some data. And then you're looking for exceptions that don't fall into your pattern. Okay, and that's describing the spatial distribution. So qualitative and quantitative measures. Now, you need to be aware of a couple of each. So for me, quantitative measures, I'm an economist. I love GNI or GDP per capita. It's a really great measure. It tells me a lot about the income and how it's distributed across people in the country that I'm looking at. I'd also be looking at life expectancy, so how long people are expected to live at the time at which they are born. There's a direct link clearly between that and GNI. The richer countries have access to better healthcare, better education, and their life expectancies are significantly longer as a result. I'd also probably looking at the Human Development Index. Now that's an index that's used a lot by geographers. It's got three components in the index. So it's got the GNI per capita, it's got a number of years in education, and it's also got life expectancy and it's put together as an index so it allows us to compare develop human development across countries between the countries and over time periods within countries so it's a useful measure and it, it's it's used universally as a quantitative measure of well-being we do need to be aware though that it can be improved because it doesn't actually allow us to understand the distribution of equality or inequality across the measures. So we can't, for example, understand whether a particular group in society is, is not seeing a developing, say, education. So it's not a perfect measure, and it, it, to become better, it can be adjusted to become the inequality human direct, uh, development index, and we use the Gini coefficient to be able to do that. That would allow us, for example, to understand whether everybody in a country has benefited equally, has a particular one of the three index uh, components in the index developed more than another. So it would give us a more in-detail uh, look at things. Now, in order to get a really good view of uh, human well-being, you'd need to have a mixture of qualitative and quantitative measures. And you need to get a mixture so that you get a broad and holistic view of what's going on. If you only focus on one part of the measure, then you're going to be very blinkered and you're probably going to miss a lot of things that you need to know about. Qualitative measures, so the, the, the best well-known well one on that is the Happy Planet Index. Now, the Happy Planet Index has a survey in it that's done by Gallup. It's got life expectancy and GNI, and then that, those three components are all divided by the ecological footprint. Okay, now that's a qualitative measure because of that survey of well-being, which is obviously subjective. And we score very poorly on this. We, we're at 140, I think, in the world. And the reason for that is because we have a poor ecological footprint because we have a high per capita carbon footprint. Now, once you've had a look at how we measure well-being, you then need to look at the factors affecting it. Now, we've used that little anagram, sheeped. So social factors, historic factors, economic factors, environmental factors, political factors, and technological factors. So go back to the PowerPoint, make sure you, you're aware of what each one is and have an example of each so that you can drop that into any answer you might want to give. And the final part of human well-being is improving well-being. So in this little section, we're looking at things like NGOs, non-government organizations, and they are many and massive across the world. So Amnesty International, World Vision, Oxfam, Red Cross, 
Doctors Without Borders. There's thousands of these groups that operate across the world. They operate non-for-profit. They're not associated with the government. And they go to places and they work on specific projects helping with human well-being. So, for example, Amnesty International, they uh, their focus is on prisoners, uh, making sure people have fair trials, that they are convicted safely, and that they avoid death penalties. Okay, so these are people, they go off and they work in these places, they often uh, get minimum wages, but they're doing it largely because they want to improve the lives of people uh, across the world. And, and a lot of these people operate in very dangerous places, but they don't take sides, they're simply there to help people less well off than themselves. Then we've got foreign aid, it's another way of improving um, uh, well-being and that's governments giving money to different parts of the world to help uh, those it, those countries improve so for example australia a rich country will be giving money to different poorer countries to do things like build hospitals water supplies uh, schools and so on and the last little part of improving well-being are the sustainable development goals by the united nation now there's 17 of these goals and there's a couple there's about seven of them that actually relate directly to human well-being so you don't need to know all 17 but what you do need to know is the ones that relate to human well-being so for example you've got um things like uh, eradicating poverty Okay, so you don't, as I say, you don't need to know them all, you just need to know the ones that relate to us. So, um, you know, ending hunger and ensuring healthy lives, promote well-being, uh, gender equality, inclusive and quality education, and so on. Now, you also did a little case study where you compared the well-being in Australia to the well-being of Indigenous Australians, and then most of you chose India. So make sure you're familiar with the differences between those three groups and some of the things that have been done to improve the well-being of those groups. And that, in a nutshell, really finishes off uh, our geography section. So physical, focus on your coastal work that you did with the field study, and human, bio, uh, human geography is all about our well-being. Okay, hope that helps. Try some practice questions and uh, we'll see you at the exam. Bye for now.